إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده وحبيبه وخاتم رسله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه ومن سار على نهجه إلى يوم الدين أما بعد My brothers and sisters in Islam, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I would like to begin by welcoming you to this first lesson of a long series about the biography of the Prophet, our beloved Prophet and Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Messenger and the Prophet whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent not only to a particular people nor to only a particular nationality or clan but to the rest of the world and that includes all the human beings all the jinn Wallahi, he was even sent as a mercy and a passion a compassion to the animals and even to all generations to come till the last hour he is Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Before I begin, an advice is that whenever we hear the name of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam being mentioned, we should not just sit there and listen without saying anything. We must honor his name every time we hear it by either saying sallallahu alayhi wa sallam or by saying peace and blessings of Allah be upon him the likes of those nations and not just to let his name pass like that Muhammad وسلم, is not the father of any one of us as Allah says in the Quran so he is not someone who uh, as Allah is trying to is telling us that the Prophet is not like anyone else and therefore when you address him address him in the best of names the Prophet is the seal of the prophethood there is no other prophet after him and he was the final prophet of all the prophets and messengers that Allah Taala sent throughout the ages the name Muhammad was وسلم, was the first of its kind in the time when the Prophet was born and the one who named him that name is his uncle or his grand- grandfather Abdul Muttalib his grandfather Abdul Muttalib whom we are about to talk about today insha'Allah the name Muhammad is comes from the root 
meaning alham, meaning praiseworthy, or to be praised. And surely Muhammad is the one most worthy of praise of all the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. His name is also Ahmad. The name Ahmad is mentioned in the Old Testament and in the Torah, the Torah and the Zabur, the arms of Dawood or David. However, the name Muhammad وسلم, was first named by his, great, by his grandfather as we said. And it was known to be in the Quran. Another name for him is also Mustafa or Al-Mustafa. When you add Al, it gives it greater meaning, greater honor. Literally meaning the chosen one. Obviously every prophet is a chosen one. But Muhammad وسلم, was, this name was attached to him because his, Allah's choice of him was a very unique one and a very special one like none other before. As we said, one of the unique features of the Prophet is that he was sent to all of mankind and he was also sent with a miracle, the Qur'an, like none of any other scripture or revelation which Allah revealed. He came in a form that is an Arabic language. However, not like any Arabic that anyone can speak. Yet at the same time, everyone, every Arab could understand it. Or anyone who learns the Arabic. Easy to memorize. Impossible to imitate. Lasting to forever and ever. In the words of Allah. In the words of Allah Himself. Not in the words of human beings. The Bible, the Torah and the Injil and the Zabur, they were in the words of man and the people changed them. Even though they were a miracle, their miracle is not like the Qur'an. Muhammad was the last and the most special of all the prophets. Another name of his is also Mahmud, which also means the noteworthy praised one. The noteworthy praised one. So these are the names which Allah Taala has attached to him. Other than the descriptions and characteristics and attributes which Prophet is also named, such as Al-Qasim, the one who divided. Divided between what? Between the Haqq and the Dawid. Between the right and the wrong. Between the truth and the falsehood. So he is Al-Qasim. And he is also other Al-Qasim. However, the four names are the ones attached to him. And no one else can be called Al-Qasim because it is an attribute of the Prophet ﷺ in his description. But people can be named one of the four names of the Prophet ﷺ. If you really want to name Al-Qasim, then you are not allowed to add Al. The correct way is not to add Al because in Arabic when you add Al to anything you are giving it a unique name Alam something which you are recognized by in attribute and description so Qasim is a lesser issue than naming Al-Qasim 
Tonight, insha'Allah, I will not talk about, I will not begin by speaking about Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when he was a prophet. Nor am I going to speak everything about the time before he was a prophet, like his childhood. I have promised myself that I'm not going to talk about the brief history before Muhammad sallallahu birth. But after researching and looking into the biography of the Prophet ﷺ through the books of history, the various books called the Seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, I found that it's not fair to talk nearly starting from the birth of the Prophet ﷺ without mentioning the world in which the Prophet ﷺ was raised in, the world to which the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ was sent to so that we can appreciate what we are about to hear. When you study and understand the environment and the history behind the place where the Prophet upon him was born and sent to, you will appreciate it much more and go home thinking to yourself, I've never known this, I've never seen or looked at the life of the Prophet in this way as, it, as I have learned today. <coughs> I will go into a bit of technical issues, technical, historical events, and I want you tonight to listen carefully, inshallah, and try to concentrate. And I will simplify it for you, because I know there are young people here who maybe require some explanation, and I will try to do that, inshallah. Try your best in being with me tonight and concentrating. The time before the birth of the Prophet and a little bit of the time before the Prophethood of our Prophet The sources that I have used so that you can also use these sources you don't have to go to university or go overseas thinking that you can only get this knowledge from some, some special place overseas and you have to climb high mountains and go through deep valleys and rough, rocky mountains to get this special knowledge. The knowledge of Islam is very easy for everyone. And the unique thing about the Qur'an is that no, never in time or in any history or age was the Qur'an revealed in parts of it. Or parts of it were hidden because of some political agenda or political issue or security. The Qur'an was there, given to everybody. Read in any situation you are. And therefore Islam, all of it, is also not hidden. You can read it and reach it wherever you are. These books here, which I have on my right and the left, if you could understand the Arabic, all of this would be enough for you to become a great scholar. And the English ones that are existing here are enough for some of us who want the preliminary principles of Islam. The books and the sources, I have one here to show you, it's called Sirat al-Nabi and the Orientalists. I prefer this book because these Orientalists are non-Muslims and also gives reference, reference to what the Bible says and what the non-Muslims say about the interpretation of Jahiliyyah you know, the time of ignorance and what Prophet did and it goes into refuting what non-Muslims said about the Prophet refuting many issues so I'd like to use that and not just learn the events and the story also my sources are Ar-Rahik al-Makhtoum Ar-Rahik al-Makhtoum, the sealed nectar very famous book to us all 
This is called Siratul Nabi Sallallahu and and the Orientalists by Muhammad Ali, a King Fahad complex for the printing of the Holy Quran in Medina. For those of you who like Saudi Arabia, this is a book to go for. If you don't, I still advise you to go for it, and you'll probably change your mind. So the Seal of Mecca, Al-Rafiq Al-Maktoub, a very, a very famous book, very authentic book. It won many awards. If, you, if your English is good, read it. If your Arabic is good, read the Arabic version. It's original form. Another thought, there, there are really literally dozens of books about Sira of the Prophet There are also a series of tapes by Shaykh Ha'ad al-Qarm was given out here the 13 series, 13 tapes and also a series about the Prophet by Tariq al-Sulaydan also a very good one for people who understand the Arabic to go and listen to so these are my main sources which I like to look in I didn't go too far now how do we get the history of the Prophet how did we know about it? you wonder to yourself, how did it reach us? There are three main sources how these books came to be, if you want to know. Number one, the Qur'an, obviously. The Qur'an talks about a lot of the incidences and the battles and certain tiny events. For those of you who know Tafsir, look into the Qur'an and you will find in the battles and little certain verses Wallah, you'd be amazed when you read certain verses and you find the reasons behind why they were revealed. It's got a lot to do with the seerah of the Prophet and the events that happened. And you begin to also appreciate the verses of the Qur'an. So that's the first thought. Another thought which explains it even further are the hadith of the Prophet Hadiths are very well preserved and maintained. Chains of narration. So-and-so said to me, who said to me, who so-and-so said to me that the Prophet said. These are hadith. And the third thought we call them Marazi literature. They are, they are literature like the Hadith, but less accurate than the Hadith. They are literature gathered by the people around the Prophet who saw him and went with him and, and traveled with him, the companions of Prophet They would say, for example, I saw the Messenger on this day do this, or I saw them the same. The Prophet on the day of so and so, this happened and other literature of history before Muhammad's birth of the tribes of the Arabs and what happened there and also by the Tabi'een, like the children of the companions they heard from their fathers that they witnessed the Prophet on this day happen and so they gathered them all scholars gathered from the Qur'an, the Hadith and the Maghazi as they call them these are three main sources and they are all what we rely on you'll find some of the Maghazi literature not very accurate sometimes. Some things are a little bit weird. So you will understand why. And before everybody goes to sleep, I know it's gotten a little bit technical. Let's go into, inshallah, a little bit more interesting explanation about Arabia. Yes, Arabia. What is Arabia? Hands up those who have heard of Arabia. Come on, we've all heard of Arabia. How many Arabs are there here? I'm one. Arab, put your hands up. Okay, Arab. People from Egypt also Arab. Iraq are Arab. Jordan, Arab. 
Palestinian are Arab. Certain parts of Africa are also Arab. Abyssinia, Arab. Yes? Some parts of Asia are also Arab, believe it or not. And there are some people here who are not originally Arabs but are naturalized Arabs. And I'm going to explain that inshallah a little bit further. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was a naturalized Arab. And I'll explain that inshallah soon. But before that, Arabia is the largest peninsula on the surface of the earth. It's not just one country, it's a peninsula. Several different countries and lands. And also, it extends to some other continent. It's made up of about three different continents, believe it or not. Asia, Africa, and what we call the Middle East today. No? That is Asia, yes, but I just want to say the Middle East is also part of it, part of Asia as well. And it's nearly about a third of all of Europe inside. It's a huge place. It forms, as I said, part of Asia and enjoins with much of Africa. If you know the Sinai Desert and Egypt, part of Africa over there. It also contains Saudi Arabia, as I said, in Iraq and Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Yemen, Oman, right, Qatar, Palestine and others. It's surrounded on three sides by three waters. They are called the Red Sea. On the west, they are, there's a Red Sea that, that covers it. And there's also the Persian Gulf on the east and the Arabian Sea in the south. For those of you who like geography, this is something for you. So the Arabian Peninsula is surrounded by these three waters that, are, that were known to the Arabs. You'll find that a lot in the Sira. Hadith dimension, you'll find the Red Sea and so on, and you will know what we're talking about inshallah. It has around it, especially on the bottom of it, the south and the western part, it has many high mountains and cliffs and valleys and rough rocky hills surrounding it. It's a rough, rough place. Lots of hills, lots of valleys, high mountains, I'm talking about, you know, 10,000 meters. High mountains. And Arabia is situated in the middle of this world. Like right in the center. You know before, before the 15th and 16th century, you know when you say 1501, 1521, like what we say now, no, we say 1997, well, in the, in the 15th century, 15 whatever, whatever, people didn't know Australia and they didn't know, you know, parts towards Russia, they didn't know um, America, they didn't know all these places. All they thought was, what we know now is today, the Middle East, Asia, and Africa, and a bit of Europe, they thought this was the whole world. And anybody who sailed beyond that is going to fall in space somewhere. Then a fall never come back. They thought the world was like that. Until they discovered the world was round and that there are other countries and continents. People sailed and found Australia and so on. But Australia and America and all of those weren't known to the Arabs. Muhammad Sallallahu didn't know Australia. He didn't know America. Yet at the same time, in the times of the last hour, the Prophet Sallallahu gives reference to other lands beyond those continents, like Australia and America. Refer back to the signs of the last hours we spoke about. So the Arab world was like the biggest and the middle of all of that. And it still is. The features of the Arab world, because of high rocky mountains, the climate was really hot, the traditions of the Arabs were really sort of unique, 
you'll find that the Europeans are like people in Rome and Persia. They're not Arabs. They, they never came in like intruded into the Arab world. They didn't want it. They didn't want to come in and take it over or live in there because it was too hard for them to live. Foreigners couldn't live in the Arab land. And this is why you will find, even till today, and many historians say that, that the Arabs, amongst all other groups and ethnic groups of the world, the Arabs have held mostly to their ethnicity, to their culture, to their customs, very well. Because they were the ones who were least infiltrated and intruded by foreigners. They, they didn't mix too much. Because foreigners, as I said, couldn't live amongst them. Why would they? Rocky mountains, valleys, hot weather, there's no agriculture, it's nothing. The Arab world was really not really a world for agriculture and water and trees and greenery. I'd like to ask you a question here and probably bring something to your mind. I want to teach you something tonight. I want to teach you something more than just motivation. Hands up those who have heard the word Semitic. Good. Anti-Semitic. Yeah? Anti-Semitic. Do you know who this is referred to these days? Someone? The Jews. Okay, very good. That is referred to the Jews today only because the West are the ones who reference the Jews to be named Semitic. Because they, the Jews' influence in America is very big and they call them Semitic. You see, this word Semitic, they, the Jews take pride in that. That we are Semitic. And anyone who talks against the Jews is anti-Semitic. You see, they know their history and they know that what they are saying is actually false. And they have they are not the, Semit- the, the only Semitic people. In fact, the real Semitic people are who? Are the Arabs. And the children of Israel, they go back, their origin is Arab. If you want to get technical. We are. Arabs are the actual more Semitic than the Jews today. Because Semitic actually holds the meaning of those if you want to say you're Semitic, you hold the original traditions and customs and way of life as the original Semitic people. And the Arabs are the ones who are held, held mostly to the origin, the original traditions of Ibrahim salam and the Arabs after him. So if you want to really get technical, the Arabs today are really the most Semitic people. Original people, if you like. The Jews are no longer original as they were before. They took a path away. So we are the most Semitic in characteristics, in our physical features, in our manners, in our customs, our habits of thought and language. And one historian, a non-Muslim, said, and I quote, The people of Arabia have remained virtually the same throughout all the recorded ages. And this is a book called The History of the Arabs, written by a non-Muslim. I'm not trying to praise the Arabs, because soon you're going to find out that the Arabs were the most barbaric people. But what I'm trying to say is that increase yourself in knowledge to know that the Jews, they take pride in this name, they are not really the the real Semitic people, we are the Semitic people. So don't let them appear more knowledgeable than you. As I said, there are Arabs and there are Arab Mustarabah. Say it after me. Al-Arab and Arab Mustarabah. Okay, what does that mean? 
The Arabs, the real Arabs, the ones who are called Arabs, not the Mustarada, they are the ones who are also mentioned in the Old Testament as the Yemenis, the Yemenites, people from Yemen. They're the real Arabs. They're the real origin of all Arabs. And from the Yemen came a people called Al Qahtani. Have you ever heard of a, good, a, a reciter called Khalid Al Qahtani? Anyone? Yeah, so you've heard of Qahtani. What, mainly in Saudi Arabia, you hear people with a surname called Al Qahtani. It means that they are originally from the real full on Arabs, like Arab, Arab, Arab parents, Arab look, look like Arabs, full on dark Arabs that come from Yemen and those places. The Qahtanis and other types. And also, the Sabians. Have you heard in the Quran Allah Ta'ala says Asfabi'un? They're the real Arabs as well. They immigrated and came and lived in the Jazeera, the Arab land in, in, in Saudi Arabia and Mecca and Medina and all of that. Al Auswal Khazraj, ever heard of them? Al Auswal Khazraj are also the Madanis, the Ansar, who later on were the Ansar of the Prophet. We all know Medina, where the Prophet went and the Madanis. They are also originally from the, from the Arab and they, are, they have a lineage of Sabians and Qahtanis and, and Yemenis and also the Meccans the Meccans emigrated, they were also original Arabs so most of the Saudi Arabians most of them, especially the Meccans and the Medinans are original, original Arabs apart from some of them there are some tribes that are not and I'm going to mention them they are the tribes from which Muhammad came from and they are the Arab Musta'araba. The story of the Musta'araba comes like this. Ismail alayhi salam. Have you heard of Ismail alayhi salam? Yes, of course, he is the son of Ibrahim alayhi salam. Ibrahim alayhi salam married a woman from Egypt. She was a servant lady in Egypt, one of the Egyptian kings. Sarah alayhi salam. Sarah the other wife of the Prophet Ibrahim she managed to get Hajar as a gift from the king it's a long story and she gifted her to Ibrahim to marry her even though she gifted her to Ibrahim to marry her she still became jealous of her that's the nature of the women and Allah gave Ibrahim a son from Hajar named Ismail before Sarah Sarah became so jealous that they departed. Allah commanded Ibrahim to put her in the desert of Mecca. There was no buildings, nothing at all, no population, no water, nothing. We all know the story. And Sarah remained in Palestine. Ismail grew up in Mecca from a young age and the people of Yemen, the original Arabs, came and settled around the water of Zamzam. Long story, you all know it. And Ismail salam married from the Yemen. Ismail salam, his father Ibrahim salam, you see, he was originally an Arab. But when he went, his ancestors went to Babylon, Babylonia, above Iraq. He mixed with non-Arabs. And then returned back to where he came from. So Ibrahim salam is actually really, originally an Arab. Technically speaking. So Ismail salam came back from there and married the original Arabs, they hadn't mixed with anyone yet and so from him came twelve sons and from these twelve sons came all of these 
Arab Musa'raba tribe from which Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam finally was born from. So he is Musa'raba. His lineage is Ismail And most of us are officially me, the Lebanese, the Syrian, uh, other types of people, we come from Arab Musa'raba. From the same lineage of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, meaning from Ismail alayhi wasallam. The Jews come from Ishaq alayhi wasallam. And the Jews hate the Arabs. And they say that the Arabs, they came from a servant woman, Adam. And we refuse to have a prophet coming from a servant woman, Hazar. And so they named themselves the Semitic people and we're, you know, Arabs. Uh, so, you know, even though they originally technically came from Arabs as well, Ibrahim alayhi salam. It all goes back to that. But I don't want to bore you too much about that anymore. Let's come back over here. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam therefore was one of the naturalized Arabs and the Jews hated him because he was not from Ishaq alayhi salam but rather from Ismail alayhi salam they rejected him because of their nationalism and therefore the Jews today generally speaking hate being told that Muhammad sallallahu was sent as a prophet to them you will find out later on that their own Bible, the Torah was telling them of the coming of a prophet that will lead them to salvation and they used to tease the Madanist Arabs, the Aus and the Khazraj about that they used to tell them a man is going to come soon and liberate us and so Muhammad came they rejected him and the Aus and Khazraj took him as a prophet and he liberated them instead you'll find this out inshallah later on let me now talk a little bit about the Kaaba and here you will find how the Prophet comes from a very strong and honorable lineage ancestors that no other Arab had the privilege of I want to show you how Allah Taala was planning for the birth of this new Prophet Muhammad وسلم, not only from any type of normal tribe but from the most honorable lineage well respected by all the Arabs not only the Arabs but even the non-Arabs outside of Arabia most honest, most respected until today. Historians cannot go past that. And many historians today still hold Muhammad and believe in him as a prophet, hold him in the highest form of the most influential people. And they respect his time and his fear. Ibrahim alayhi salam was honored by all the Arabs. No matter what religion they were, Christians, Jews, Muslims, uh, Christians, Jews, Fabians, on the middle of Ibrahim, whatever they were, Mushrikeen, idol worshippers, they all respected Ibrahim alayhi salam. And they all had some aspect of the teachings of Ibrahim alayhi salam. They all believed in one God. They believed Allah. Even the Christians used to say Allah, the Jews used to say Allah, and the Arabs that worshipped the idols, they had Allah as the Supreme Lord. Similar to what the Christians say today, they say the Father in heaven. He's the ultimate Lord, not Jesus. And Ibrahim salam is mentioned in the Torah and the Injil and now in the Quran. And so these tribes, twelve tribes, began to live in Mecca and they took over Mecca. The Arabs began to look after Mecca and they honored Mecca and the Kaaba. 
and they held the Abrahamic tradition which was the most important to them and a universal feature in the social life of the Arabs it was a symbol of their unity and identity despite how the division of the Arabs it was their identity so Kaaba and Mecca held a very valuable part in their hearts they all loved it they began circumambulating around the Kaaba all the parts of different Arabs the Christians, the Jews, all of them circumambulating around the Kaaba honoring the Kaaba and anybody who looked after the children they were honorable and respected and they used to do Hajj the same way we do Hajj today and, but slightly more different but very very similar to the way the Sunnah of the Prophet showed us they all practiced circumcision why? as an Abrahamic tradition it was a Sunnah to the Arabs and to the Jews circumcision even to the Christians they even placed images of Ibrahim and Ismail inside the Holy Kaaba along with all their other idols and statues they used to say this is the image of Ibrahim and Ismail that's how much they honored them and despite their shirk their polytheism they did not forget the name Allah whom they held and regarded as the Supreme Lord even though this was the case when the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, did come to them and he asked them to revert to the way of their true ancestor Ibrahim السلام, the belief of Ibrahim not to worship idols they refused him and they they said no no this is not true because you see brothers and sisters I want to tell you something about the Arabs there is nothing more obnoxious to an Arab than to ascribe a false or imaginary ancestor of them like to say your ancestors weren't like that they were like this you can't tell an Arab that even till today the Arab holds great pride in their lineage Try, they never tried to swear at any one of their mothers or their ancestors or grandfathers they'll probably miss you this is one of the most important things to them so the ancestors the belief, ancestral belief to the Arabs is something which they held remarkable even though they went astray after the death of Ismail السلام, the tribes of Arabia went to Mecca as I said to the time of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and the Arabs weren't that bad they were very hospitable and in their traditions in Mecca and the Kaaba and they had five main traditions that you need to know I need to tell you these five main traditions which they used to do in Mecca these five traditions were the following number one Al-Hijabah say after me Al-Hijabah which means holding the key to the Kaaba and preserving it so they held the key to the Kaaba and preserved it the second one is As-Tiqaya say As-Tiqaya in the Quran it's mentioned أَجَعَلْتُمْ ثِقَايَةَ الْحَاجِ وَعِمَارَةَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ كَمَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ How can you make the thiqaya and the building of the Kaaba equal to believing in Allah and His Messenger and performing the prayers and so on? They used to have pride in the thiqaya. Thiqaya literally means that they were in charge of supplying water to the pilgrims and the right to administer the well. 
so that every time the children came, they gave him water. It's called a tzikai. And he found pride in that, like really great honor. And it's the thing that this tzikai which we have is better than any other belief or tradition anyone else has. Number three, arifaba, which means giving provision or food to the pilgrims. Number four, anadwa. Have you heard of anadwa? Nadwa. It means the council. They used to have a council over there. And aliwa which basically means the loyalty to the tribe and to, to your Arab tribe and fighting for it and you know, commanding war and all those things this was an extremely honorable tradition as I said and they used to fight for their rights whoever had it was the best and the most honorable tribe the tribe that rose as being the most worthy in the end and remember this name now was Quraysh who was it? So finally, the main honorable people in Mecca who used to do these five main traditions looking after the pilgrims, you know, safeguarding the Kaaba, entrusted with the key, and all those things were called Quraysh. And Quraysh was the most honorable of all the tribes of the Arabs known inside of Arabia and outside of Arabia. Quraysh was where the Prophet Muhammad came from. More specifically, if you want to know more specifically, it's Banu Abdu'l-Manaf. Abdu'l-Manaf people. And that's also where the Prophet ﷺ came from. They were the grandfathers of Muhammad ﷺ. And these traditions began with a man named Hashim. And he was the Prophet's great-grandfather. Who was the Prophet's great-grandfather? Hashim. Hashim. Now here's something interesting. The Prophet's great-grandfather Hashim, he was a remarkable man. He was the natural spokesman of Quraysh in international relations. That's how important he was. He was, he was successful in trade treaties with a, 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 a country called by, by, with the Byzantine and the Abyssinian authorities, with Ethiopia. He made a treaty with them in their trade. And it expanded, they, like their the, the, the commerce and their trade expanded greatly beyond Arabia. And they began to honor this man, Hashim, the great-grandfather of Muhammad Sallallahu Hashim also introduced a system unique to the Arabs, consisting of two principal years, yearly trade of travel to foreign countries, once in the winter and once in the summer. Allah Subhanahu wa mentions this in the Qur'an. لِإِلَاتِ قُرَيْشِ Allah Taala mentions their trade when they used to go in winter and in summer to foreign lands. Hisham, Hashim, is the one who actually initialized this type of trade and Allah mentions it in the Qur'an. This is and it's something very honorable. That's why I'm mentioning to you where the Prophet came from. The honor then was passed on to another man who was the younger brother of Hashim. His name was Al-Muttalib. And Al-Muttalib is, is another great-grandfather of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He had high qualities in his mind and in his heart. And he was nicknamed Al-Fayd. Al-Fayd meaning the, the, the over-generous, the outstanding person in his personality. Over-generous and outstanding in his personality. And Al-Muttalib passed on this honor to another man called Abdul Muttalib. Hashim's son, and Abdul Muttalib is the grandfather of whom 
of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I want to tell you a little story about Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The miracles began with the grandfathers of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Here's a lesson. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors you, and you are favorable to Allah, He not only honors you and gives you miracles and blessings, He gives the people around you blessings. He even gives your children blessings and your children's children. Wallahi, it may even reach the seventh generation. And your fathers and grandfathers may be blessed because of you. Did you know that? Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam which was about to come, Allah has blessed his grandfathers with all of this. And here is Abdul Muttalib, close to the birth of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Listen to these remarkable events that happened to Abdul Muttalib. Even though he was a mushrik, he lived long years. One of the greatest things he did was that he actually restored the Zamzam water. Did I tell you that there was a tribe called Banu Jurhum? Banu Jurhum was an enemy of Quraysh and they hated him. So what Banu Jurhum did before going away was that they, they covered up Zamzam water. And on top of Zamzam water, they built two statues, one male and one female statue. And they made the Quraysh not know where the whereabouts of Zamzam water ever. And they made Quraysh, they tricked them into worshipping these idols, and they didn't know where Zamzam water was. They had no idea, no clue that Zamzam water was right underneath their statues, they were worshipping up in their sacrifices. And they were looking for it for centuries. Zamzam water was hidden away from them, from Quraysh. Look how they tricked them into worshipping idols. That's when you walk away from the worship of the one God, you get tricked by every person that comes along. By your enemy, by the dog, by animals, by anything. Doesn't matter. No one had a clue of Zamzam water until Abdul Muttalib, Allah Taala showed him three dreams in three consecutive nights. In the first night, a man was coming to him and pointing towards a place where those statues were, close to the Kaaba, and telling him, Dig there! Dig there! The second night, he saw the same dream. The third night, the same dream, saying to him, That is Zamzam. So Abdul Muttalib thought, Obviously, they believed in Allah. So he thought, This is something spiritual. He took his only son that time, and he went to those statues. He knocked down the statues, and the tribe saw him do that. They became aggravated. But he continued. He dug through in that night, and he found two golden bangles, which Banu Jurhum had left behind. So he kept on digging beyond those two golden bangles, and then he reached finally a stone. That was the stone that covered the, the opening of Zamzam. He released the stone, and Zamzam came rushing out. Upon this, Abdul Muttalib, he, he, he began to praise Allah out of joy and he began to raise his praise until everybody heard him saying Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah because of this spiritual thing which he had received the rest of Quraysh came and gathered around there were about 12 tribes and after being aggravated when they saw Zamzam water come out they became greedy so they said wait a minute this Zamzam water came from our great great grandfather Ismail alayhi salam so each one of us has a right to it. But Abu Muttalib said to them, no. 
this was a revelation from God and this was special for me. This is my right to administer it and to take care of it. So they said, well, let's do a... Uh, they had something over there where they had like a... Um, what do you call it? Quran. Uh, What's the Quran in English? If I don't know, who's going to know it? Quran. Eh? Like they used to put arrows or straws and then you have to pick out the straws and see who gets the chance of, you know... It was like a gambling sort of thing, or like a chance. And they did that. And every time Abdul Muttalib, he would get the lucky straw. And so they said, very well, you take Zamzam water. And so Abdul Muttalib not only was honorable, but he also had the privilege of Zamzam water. This miracle was known by all the Arabs of Quraysh and beyond Quraysh. And so his honor even grew much, much more. He took out the bangles, the golden bangles as I said, and he placed them on the door of the Kaaba. That was the first time ever that the door of the Kaaba was decorated with, with gold. So he became well known throughout the Arabia and centuries. Because of his wisdom and age, he not only was known, but he became the chief of all Quraysh in all their affairs, Abdul Muttalib. Another incident with Abdul Muttalib which even rose him was the story of the elephant. You all know the story of the elephant and the bird. I'm going to tell you that, inshallah. There was a man, a king of Abyssinia, of Ethiopia. His name was Abraham. And this man, he was a wicked man. When he noticed that all of the people of the world were all going to Mecca to do their trade, he wanted people to direct themselves to Abyssinia to do their trade over there. This trade was blossoming a lot in Mecca now. So he built a, a cathedral, like a, a church, and he called it Al-Kullay. He called it Al-Kullay. Trying to make people come to it for their trade. But it did not work. All the Arabs didn't even respond. They kept on going to Mecca because it had its, its religious value. So he became angry. He took an elephant and took all of his troops and went down headed towards Mecca in order to destroy Al-Kaaba. The Arabs weren't able to fight him because he had such a strong army. On his way he began to steal from here and take from there and amongst them were 200 camels of Abdul Muttalib. 200 camels of Abdul Muttalib. And he sent a letter to him saying, I don't want to kill your people, all I want to do is destroy the Kaaba. Because he knew that was what attracted the rest of the people of the world. So Abdul Muttalib, he met with Abraham, the king. And Abraham loved the way Abdul Muttalib presented himself and he began to respect him and honor him that he took himself off the throne and sat in front of Abdul Muttalib. And he began to speak to him and offered him some drink and food. So then Abdul Muttalib said to him, I want my 200 camels back. Abraham looked at him and was disappointed. He thought, all you came for was your, your camels when I thought you were going to come and then talk about the issues of, of Mecca, your people. Then Abdul Muttalib said to him, this was a sign of Iman here, although he wasn't a Muslim. He said to him, the Kaaba belongs to Allah. As for the camels, they belong to me. Give me my camels back and it is Allah who will defend the Kaaba against you, not me. Abraham laughed at that and said, Your God cannot even stop him. I'm too strong for him. So he challenged him. Abdul Muttalib looked, he stood up and he went to his people and told them, Go to the valleys and the mountains and Allah will protect the Kaaba. And before he went, he went to the Kaaba, kissed it and said, Oh Allah, protect your house. And surely Allah Taala did protect his house. As Abraham and his army came down with his elephants, he wanted to destroy the Kaaba with his elephants. 
coming down as he was about to swarm against Mecca we know the famous history as in the Quran Allah Taala sent a large flock of birds a huge flock of birds called Adaid certain types of huge birds and they were carrying with them rocks of Sijil Sijil are brimstone brimstone that, 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 that are vulnerable to heat and they explode we have a geologist here amongst us incorrectly and so the birds began to drop these brimstones on the people on the troops every time it landed these brimstones began to cause their bodies to decompose almost immediately they incinerated them and so most of the troops began to die away so Abraham thought I can't take it so he retreated and went and escaped and he went back to his capital in Abyssinia and died over there with his elephant as a result of the brimstone that attacked him and he could not take over or do anything to Al-Kaaba my brothers and sisters in Islam mark this event for it was in that same year that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was born in the year 570 or 571 after Christ and this is, there is a graphical description of this event in Surah Al-Feel where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ تَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ أَلَمْ يَجْعَلْ كَيْدَهُمْ فِي تَضْلِيلِ وَأَرْسَلْ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيْرًا أَبَابِيلِ تَرْمِيهِمْ بِحِجَارَةٍ سِجِّيلِ فَجَعَلَهُمْ كَعَصٍ مَأْكُولِ It talks about this event. Later after Abdul Muttalib who looked after the Prophet Muhammad for a few years the honor was passed on to the Prophet uncle called what was his name? Abu Talib Prophet uncle we will talk more about that insha'Allah later on the issue here that I want you to know is that the Prophet did not come from just a normal claim from any person ever since from the beginning right to the Ibrahim Prophet's lead was the most honorable ever in history of the Arabs and he came from people who were leaders and had blessings and miracles that happened to them Muhammad is not a normal man that came from normal people even his father Abdullah and his mother Amina they also came from the great tribe from a very noble and worthy tribe as well from Banu Hashim as well so both his mother and his father came from honorable lineages that were known to be Arabs. This is so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will prepare this new messenger so that even the people from amongst him they will look and realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen a man from the people whom you honor and you look up to. So if you reject him then you are rejecting yourself. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to prove to them. And this is why so many people accepted Muhammad as a prophet in his time. A noble family. Prophet Muhammad was therefore born of a noble family of the noble clan, Banu Hashim, of the noble Quraysh tribe of Mecca. There was no Quraysh clan in Mecca that the Prophet was not closely related to by blood or marriage. His father's name was Abdullah, son of Abdul Muttalib, son of Hashim, son of Abdul Manaf, etc. Going back to Prophet Ismail and Ibrahim His mother Amina was the daughter of Wahab, son of Abdul Manaf, etc. The same type of ancestors of nobility as his father. 
so both parents of noble tribes. The tribes in those days existed in a time of jahiliyyah, of ignorance like no, none other before, and I will briefly mention that to you now. Polytheism was one of the worst things. They worshipped idols called Wad, Suwa, Yahud, Yahud, and Nasra. They also worshipped idols which they called Lat and Uzza. And the most important statue to them all was Hubal. And Hubal was one of the newer statues that were placed around the Kaaba on the same days that the Prophet Muhammad was born. When the Prophet was born, Hubal, the statue, and many statues around it actually collapsed and some of them were broken the day the Prophet was born into this earth. Believe it or not. Shirk was everywhere and people began to worship in different ways. Each tribe, each family, Wallahi, each house of the Arab families, each house had a specific and unique idol or stone which they worshipped. And they used to keep it either hung up on their walls or near their bed or under their pillows or they used to take it with them whenever they went on journey. And they used to believe that without it, then with it, sorry, in their houses, their houses were protected, they relied on it for sustenance and provision, harm was uh, kept away from them if they keep it in the house, misfortune were kept away and fortune will come to them. This sounds familiar to some of the Muslims today, and we keep the blue eye inside of our house, or the shoe inside of our house, or a hook, or a shoe of a horse, or the hook something, or the balloon, or this, or that, whatever you want to mention or name it. Thinking that it will keep away harm from us, or bring fortune to us, or uh, a feather, or a rabbit foot, or all of these Bagramis type of, uh, I call them Bagramis, you see. These types of uh, false idol worships, Wallahi al-Azim, that were taken from the Arabs, and the Arabs took them from Greek theology. How, how dare you do these things? This is shirk, Wallahi al-Azim. Or putting some kind of leather material on your chest thinking it will keep away misfortune. That's exactly what the Arabs used to do in their politics in that time. And they had male gods and goddesses, female gods. Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, he talks, he tells a little joke about himself one time. He said, in my jahiliyyah time I used to have a, a stone or an idol which I considered for myself. Whenever I went on a journey I couldn't carry it because it was too heavy. So I used to get my dates and carve it out. Dates are easy to mend and mold. He said, on my journey I ran out of food and I got hungry so I began to eat my god. Began to eat my god. Jahiliyyah was so much there. People used to trade their women like if a man wanted an honorable son, Right? Honorable son. He didn't come from an honorable lineage. Or he wanted a son who was a poet or a warrior. He would go and find a warrior from a man, a warrior from the people. And then he would uh, secretly get his wife to sleep with him. Get his wife to sleep with him. And then not let anyone else know. And then his wife would give birth to this young boy who doesn't look like his father. But he's got qualities of a certain warrior or a poet. Just uh, that, just how important that you know, their women were so degraded. They, 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 they hated girls, they hated women, they hated females. There were misfortune to them that they would trade them, make them sleep with any man just so that they can hold their family lineage. This is how important it was to them. And so many other pathetic things, especially towards women and females. This part of Jahiliyyah didn't only exist in the Arabs, it also existed beyond the Arabs. But unfortunately we have run out of time. Next week, insha'Allah, I will continue from where we left off here. And insha'Allah, we will go into the birth of the Prophet and the time before his prophethood, leading on to his prophethood. This series, insha'Allah, will be very long. Probably 13 or 14 lectures, insha'Allah. Because I hope that, insha'Allah, you will 
be interested in it and I hope inshallah we will gain a lot of lessons from it so I hope inshallah we see you next week أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم فاستغفروا I'll just answer this question Hush. the question is is circumcision obligatory for females in Islam and the answer is no